Yeah, it's uh, so my cousin, I might have mentioned him actually on a podcast of yours. I'm not sure. So he is huge. Like, I don't know where these genetics come from. He looks like, you know, the mountain half Thor Bjornsson. Yeah, yeah. He looks like he would be his kid or something. Like, he's he's not like super tall. Like, he's probably my height, like 6'1, but he's just wide as a house. He's 255 at 17 years old. Uh, he's just like, and like, obviously his body fat is, it's not high. I mean, he's like soft, but he's just, there's like so much structure there. Like he just has so much potential. His legs are massive. Um, so I was just like, yeah, like, you know, we're at a family party yesterday. So I wanted to have him like push against me just to kind of like gauge his strength. Cause I think he'd be good with like a wrestler or jujitsu. And, uh, I'm like, dude, this kid has a lot of power on him. And like afterwards, you know, I'm like forgetting that I'm almost 30, which is just like sad now. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like I'm trying to sleep. My back is broken. I'm like, this is absurd. Yeah, it's it's pretty absurd just how many times I have this feeling of, man, I'm always working out. I've been eating healthfully for years and years now. I'm just so much fitter than the average person or I mm-hmm. must be. And then every time I get into some sort of intense physical activity unexpectedly, I am just baffled by how fragile I am. Like uh, (laughs) there was this guy here not long ago who was helping us fix some furniture or something and I needed to help him out for a second lifting something up. And then I lifted that thing up and immediately I felt my back being tweaked. I'm like, what (laughs) the hell is this? Dude, it's crazy. Like we lift hundreds of pounds in like a very, you know, form-fitting way and it seems fine and then you do something a little bit out of that and it's just like nope yeah i mean honestly i i'm scared to even think about what would happen if i tried playing soccer now um because i mean that that's just like running up and down twisting running stopping changing directions yeah. sometimes some mild contact and i mean i obviously like i mean maybe you did something else when you were in high school between classes but uh we would just run to the soccer pitch and just immediately start sprinting without any right. warming up and whatever and we were completely fine it's just just crazy yeah sprints themselves i uh i think are a little concerning like my i who was it i think it was my brother and i we were at the beach like two years ago and like obviously there's like the brotherly competition so like we sprinted and it was like neck and neck it was very close but i was just thinking in my head like ah something's gonna pop and like are you familiar with the nfl combine yeah yeah so you know they just like do like the various tests and so they had like a mini version of that back when i was in dental school and i was probably 25 26 at the time and i had a friend who used to be a sprinter and he was like 31 at the time and like we were training for it <laughs> and like both of us fucked up some muscle like his he like t- messed up his hamstring i was like feeling off and we're like all right just forget this it's too old now yeah yeah i mean honestly i, I don't mind the the getting older part especially because i always looked I, i'm actually curious like anybody who's listening to this just comment in the comment section how old do you think i am if you don't know um so i will say now the right answer is 28 but probably a lot of them would think like, oh, we have 35, 36. You think so? I mean, you know, you cannot really tell this about yourself. I mean, if I, if I, if you ask me, I think I looked the same since I was 13 years old, right? Right, right, right. I see myself every day. But um, I mean, ever since I was a young kid, people always thought that I was older than what I am. For a while, of course, it was flattering. Right, right. Uh, when I turned, you know, like 20, 22, whatever, it started to not be as flattering because, 
you start start struggling with some things which are related to aging, which you're like not super happy about, right? <laughs> like, really, you're only 25 or 23 or whatever I was at the time. I remember this guy being shocked when I was 23 because he thought that I was like 30 plus. I've heard that. That's fine. I mean, you, I guess I wouldn't think you look that much older. Um, I think I've gotten that from more of like how I act standpoint because I like historically had a baby face and now I have the facial hair. So that helps quite a bit. But I'm also like in the context of a lot of older individuals, like all the other doctors I work with are like 55 to 70. So I think part of it's like to them, I'm just a kid. Uh, yeah. um, so people think I'm younger there, but I don't know. It is interesting for sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in some instances, like uh, Menno Hensomans, who we are going to talk about, I mean, he is, um, mm -hmm. maybe he's not happy that I'm saying this uh, online, but he is, uh, how old do you <laughs> think he is? What would you think? I don't, you know, I've never really seen him talk. I've just seen pictures of him. I would guess probably around Eric Helms' age, like 36, 37. So I think he j just thir turned 30, maybe 31. Um, really? Yeah. Okay, that definitely does surprise me. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think he should be offended about that because it, it, it surprised me when I found out. So when I started following him, it was like 2015 or so. And, you know, at that time, he would have been, what, 25, 26? So, and yeah. I was shocked, but not because I think he looks bad like an old man like he looks fucking beautiful <laughs> probably like the knowledge aspect right like he's... he yeah just the way he's, he acts his demeanor the like he has this very mature kind of aura and if you meet him in person sure. also like very like very calm he doesn't have that kind of um infantile kind of thing that a 20 something would have many times at least part elements of that so many times it just comes down to that but right right anyway crazy talk but but a lot of these guys like um mike israel for example is sure. what he's 34 33 34 <laughs> yeah my friend i asked my friend how old she thought he was and she thought he was like 42 i think was the answer yeah yeah but also that because like part of it is just that he has been around for so long so you would just think mm -hmm. like man like he must be old just based on that um and, right. and also the maturity whatever anyway um Let's not waste too much time on the, the cool small talk. So, um, yeah, so today we are going to chat about refeeding and the diet breaks a little bit. And we will attempt to have a little bit of a debate because it's interesting. So the first thing we ever had an encounter about this of any kind was when we did the Would We Use PEDs podcast on your channel. Uh, it went up on my channel later on as well. And then I remember you asking mm -hmm. Steve Hall and I if we did refeeds. And we just said, like, no, no, for this and that reason. And then later you messaged me. Uh, it's like, yeah, I'm actually surprised that you guys didn't do refeeds. I feel like there is, like, quite some good rationale to do them. And uh, then you, like, brought it up again. And I was like, okay, so you're actually pretty uh, a pretty big supporter or proponent of refeeds. And then uh, later on, that actually prompted me to think about them a bit more. So I did a video about it. I just did this podcast episode about it. And then I heard you talk about that on different podcasts as well. So I felt like, okay, it's timely that we actually discuss this on a podcast, like, face-to-face -face and not just, like, right, right. Uh, do other podcasts on it and then discuss it privately. Right. So, um, so, yeah, I thought... Where we could start is both of us kind of outlining how we came to think about refeeds and diet breaks in the way we do. So maybe I would ask you first, um, like when was the first time that you ever heard about refeeds or diet breaks? 
like maybe what was your first influence? When and how did you start implementing them? And then how did your thinking about it evolve over the years? And what influences did you have over the years? Sure. Yeah. So that's part of why I was so surprised that you and Steve didn't do them because it was literally like from day one something that was implemented for me. So, you know, people have heard me talk about it before. I got into this when I was like 12 or 13. I read Body for Life and I was hooked. And that implemented a once a week cheat day and or free day, you know, whatever they wanted to call it. And you could just eat whatever you wanted. And they talked about like the reasons behind that and everything. And then from there, I was influenced by Tom Venuto. And I remember when I was like maybe like a sophomore in high school, and really thinking like, wow, like I'm going to have abs now finally because I've read his article on like how bodybuilders really get lean. And it was a combination of like a ton of cardio that he was doing. He was doing double sessions daily of like 45 minutes of cardio on top of his like five workouts per week. And he had carb cycling. And it was like, wow, like this is like the method carb cycling. And it was a really like an important critical piece of his plan. And so carb cycling, you know, has been around forever and it was just always implemented into my diets. And then I had a trainer in college and he implemented cheat days and I didn't really agree with like looking back on it, like I don't think it was like psychologically the best thing to have people do or the healthiest, but um, he had that, you know, then Skip, uh, people who know Ken Skip Hill from like intensebodybuilding.com. He had skip loading days. I mean, there was always some variation. I literally never heard of anybody dieting down without it. It was like, yeah, maybe back in the day, the old school bodybuilders who didn't know what they were doing. So, and then, you know, 3DMJ comes along. They had implemented different refeeds. Um, then in the last few years, diet breaks have been more popular. I mean, until honestly, like that's, and I was just talking to somebody about this recently. Um, I really liked the podcast you did with Mena. Like that was one of the best podcasts I've done or I've, I've heard in a while. So, oh, cool. you know, good, yeah, good job on that. But um, one of the things I will say is that he, I guess like a compliment I would give to him before I destroy him is <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, is, is that he actually did change my mind. You know, there's, there's not that much that I really like that I come across nowadays. That's like, wow, like my, my opinions kind of changed. Like a lot of this stuff is like the same. And that was the topic like refeeds in general in the last year is a topic that I've definitely been more open to changing my mind about. Um, in part, the evidence and part, just seeing, you know, people whose opinion I respect, you know, differing from mine. So I am still in favor of them. I still think the large majority of people who, who we see in this industry as viable sources of information utilize them. But it is something that in the last year or so, I've definitely seen more counter opinions too. Yeah. So I think um, the reason I wanted to start with this is because I think it would be interesting to kind of uncover what influenced us. And part of it might be that we just came across different influences, but part of it might be that we came across the same influences in many, in many instances, but we just heard different messages out from the same source, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, that would be something interesting to see because, for example, the interesting thing is that when I first got very lean, so like single-digit body fat, I've shown you some pictures from that uh, I actually mm -hmm. started out with a strategy that implemented refeeds. So I actually hired a person from the coaching team of John Kiefer, the author of Carb Backloading and Carb Night. And uh, that was, so it was basically four low days a week and then three high days. So I had four days, lower carbs, lower calorie. It was, wasn't that low, actually, 2,400 calories. 
and then three days at uh, 3,100 calories, and that was high carb, lower fat. And um, looking back, probably it was not the best. I was probably eating overall a bit too close to maintenance, so the fat loss just would have been very slow. But um, of course, I liked the refeeds. I liked eating those higher calories and higher carbs. What I did not like about that, like about it that much, is I very quickly noticed that it started doing some weird things with my psychology. So I would always try to rationalize overeating a bit more on the high calorie days because mm -hmm. I could justify it in some ways because like maybe, you know, that extra spike in leptin is going to produce more fat loss in the coming days or whatever. I would also be when I would overdo calories a little bit, not too much, but I would frequently overdo them. Right. The next day I would be a bit more watery, of course, uh, not look as lean as I did before, and then I would be stressed, and then I would have the urge to restrict a bit more. So I didn't like it that much psychologically. And then I actually just decided to stop the whole refeeding method and just started doing a straight deficit. But I kept myself updated on, or I kept my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the industry and what other experts that I respected were saying about the topic. And this was the beginning of me getting into the whole evidence-based circles. And this would have been in 2015, 16. And at that time, their overall message was, yeah, they may be beneficial, but may not be that beneficial. We don't know enough about it just yet. Uh, some people like Lyle McDonald were a bit more optimistic, but still he was talking about it as in, yeah, I mean, there might be some benefit in spiking leptin, but some long, longer periods of time of eating at higher calories might be beneficial. Uh, metabolic adaptation doesn't just happen in one day, so it doesn't get fixed in one day. So like that just kept being reinforced to me. And like this is where I wanted to get with all of this is that what I saw is that in 2018, 2019, this smaller circle of evidence-based practitioners, the 3DMJ coaching team was definitely one of the leaders of that kind of movement. They started to become, become mm. more and more optimistic about diet breaks. I'm assuming in good part from what they have seen in their own practice. And then... Um, I saw this Matador study being published and I saw a lot of people referencing it more and more like, yeah, actually now we finally have evidence that diet breaks are beneficial. And then I looked at uh, what other people were saying about that and I saw what Menno was saying about that Matador study, for example. I saw what James Krieger was saying about it and I saw that some people were actually tearing this study to shreds. Like they were, they were like, yeah, maybe potentially promising, but I mean, this study is just full of limitations. And then I saw that like Eric's group, for example, and some of these other practitioners did not mention that at all. They were just saying how, yay, we have this study, amazing, diet breaks are beneficial, finally we have evidence. And I'm not at mm. all trying to be cynical here, but I have seen, you know, these evidence-based practitioners that I otherwise respect a lot having their own kind of babies right. in the research field. And the same thing happened with like really high protein intakes in the past, where study after study, review after review was showing that above 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilogram protein intake, it just doesn't seem to be any kind of benefit from that. But at the end of every article, there was that disclaimer that, but higher protein intakes might still be beneficial. Right, right. <laughs> it, was, it was almost like that dumb and dumber, you know, when Jim Carrey's like, so you're telling me there is a chance. Right, right. So that's what it seemed like to me with the whole uh, refeed and diet break thing. So at this point, I am, um, you know, optimistic, but skeptical. That's what I would say. Um, I think for one more, just like a general comment is I would say that, you know, the longer I've been involved with this stuff, the more I am open to the fact that, I don't know, like I actually do put some weight on 
anecdote and when people say like, oh, like we don't have evidence for that. It's like, well, when you look at like evidence-based medicine, right? Evidence-based medicine doesn't mean that you only go by like exactly what is in these huge randomized controlled studies. It's like, that's what we use, but we also will go based on, you know, like clinical evidence that we have from, or like expert evidence even. And that's, you know, there's obviously a hierarchy of evidence, but it's not that you just throw out people's anecdotes. It's not that you just throw out, you know, what an expert on the topic says. So when you're looking at something like bodybuilding research, which is way less controlled with way smaller sample sizes and things like that, I think a lot of the studies we look at do have to be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, to the point that even somebody like Brad Schoenfeld, who is running these studies that show, for instance, that there's no benefit to going to failure, will say himself that he thinks there probably are some benefits that we're just maybe not picking up because of the population that we're sampling and things like that. So when it comes to the refeeds, I think the evidence does show that there are some benefits to it. I think if I look at like my stance on them from the past to now, I think probably I was overly gung-ho about them. And I do think the benefits can be overblown. I think certainly you have many, many examples of people who don't implement them, who have great results. Um, but I, I would consider that when you have, you know, so many people who use them and it, it seems, it seems to be at least the kind of like the standard, there's something to be said for that. Um, and even if we are just going on anecdote, but again, I mean, we have your anecdote, Steve anecdote, a lot of people's anecdote who, when they don't use them, the results are fine. So that's why I say my, my opinion on them is much less hard in stance, I think, than it used to be. Yeah. Um, just, I'm actually curious. So this is not uh, me trying to like challenge you on that necessarily, but I, I actually don't know what have you seen from the anecdotal side because, um, because oftentimes it's, it's tough. Like many times we think that something has been done in a certain way forever. And then when you look into it, it's actually not necessarily the case. Um, for example, something that Menno likes to point out to bring him up again is that People always say that uh, bodybuilders have always trained with the bro splits, like the one time a week body parts mm -hmm. uh, kind of training has been the standard for ages. But actually, what he likes to point out is that if you look at the St Steve Reeves era and those guys, they were doing full body training three times a week. Right. That was like the bro split of that era, basically. And then after Arnold's appearance, then the whole like one body part, one time a week, that became the new standard. So um, what have you seen from the anecdotal side? Like, um, is it more so the evidence-based people that you see doing this? Or what have you seen on that front? I mean, and this could just be my own bias playing a role without me having even realized it. But like I said before, even before talking with you and Steve and saying that you guys don't both don't do refeeds, I mean, it literally seemed universal to me that everybody seemed to implement them. Like I, I would hear the occasional story about some old school guys not doing it, but truly every source of information that I came across on dieting, I mean, so much by Lyle McDonald, right? Every, like, from his Ultimate Diet 2.0, Body Opus, um, Keto, like his Keto book implemented refeeds, Cyclical Ketogenic Diet, Tom Venuto, 3DMJ. I mean, just everybody I came across, like it was, it was like, this is how dieting is done. So that's why I said it's, it's, it was very surprising at first to hear that you guys didn't. Um, and I'm not talking about like for like shortcuts, like certainly if somebody's doing like a four week mini cut, I'm not saying you need to have a refeed every week, but any time that I saw people talk about longer periods of dieting, it was always implemented in, to some degree. So now if you're asking as far as like what benefits, you know, again, it's, it's almost like I never even had the question of, well, how does this compare to not having refeeds? Because 
in my mind, it was like, well, no, once you don't have refeeds, you know, you have a further decrease in metabolic rate and you have further loss of muscle mass. I mean, just all the standard reasons that we hear for it. So I never really even like looked at like counter research. And, and also I assume I mean, most of the diet research obviously is not in bodybuilders. So, which is kind of potentially a cop-out answer, but also true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I would try to give my kind of balanced view on um, what I would want to see from the research side and then also maybe from the anecdotal side for me to buy into it. Um, so I think when we say that there is research support for something, I think we have to be careful because um, that's kind of a buzzword, which a lot of people, in, especially who follow evidence-based circles, will be triggered by, and that, that will be the catalyst for them to jump on something. So I think we have to be careful because there is actually a lot of research for a lot of different things, which um, is not the same thing necessarily as having research that fits the criteria of what qualifies as good research. So for example, I started out as a kind of as a low-carb keto zealot back in the day. And if at that time someone had asked me, you know, what's the evidence behind keto and low carb being superior for fat loss or lack of fat gain when bulking or something, I would have said, man, there is tons and tons of research. Right, and, right. And that was true. That was really true. I mean, carb backloading, which James Krieger and basically anybody who we respect in this industry has ripped to shreds by this point. That book has 4,000 citations, I think. Right. Um, and the thing is, for example, with keto, there is actually a lot of, I wouldn't say good, but there is actually a lot of evidence showing superior fat loss. The problem with a lot, with basically all of that research was for the longest time is that it did not control for protein intake. And then when it started controlling for protein intake, then we started seeing that uh, the benefits are starting to disappear. Now, I think when it comes to seeing whether refeeds and diet breaks are showing any benefit, what we would have to see is that, uh, first of all, adherence is controlled for, which has not really happened thus far. We would also have to have proper measurements, which is also problematic. So, for example, not measuring the extra glycogen levels after a refeed, which can confound the lean body mass reading when you do a scan. And then after that, honestly, what I would want to see is having basically the time spent in a deficit being equated or at the very least, the average deficit over time being equated. So for example, if I saw a study where two groups had the same average deficit over time, and one was doing any kind of calorie cycling, refeeds, diet breaks or something, and had superior results, that would definitely strongly nudge me to believe that, okay, there, there is something there. If the, well, basically the average calorie deficit over time is not equated, which was in the case in the Matador study, for example, where one group took twice as long, then even if there is some benefits to refeeds or diet breaks, then we can always ask the question of, well, is that better than simply having a smaller deficit over time? So ideally, what I would want to see is maybe having three groups. So one having maybe a 20% deficit and just continuous dieting. The other one having also a 20% deficit and having diet breaks, say every two weeks or every three weeks or something. And then maybe a third group, which is having only a 10% deficit and is spending kind of doing the, the deficit over time is the same as in the refeed group. If in that kind of a study design, we would see that, okay, there is superior results for refeeds or diet breaks, that would strongly nudge me. So that's kind of on the, the research side for me. Um, do you have any comments on that or I can delve into the anecdotes? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, it's interesting when you guys talk about you and Menno had both mentioned how 
the refeed group had higher adherence in the matador study or like that's the suspicion and so you say well that doesn't you know obviously that flaws the study right because if they had high they had better results because they had better adherence right that's like kind of one of your arguments right yeah so at the same time Menno is also arguing that this style of refeeds causes less adherence that you know this is a big issue with refeeds that people have refeeds and then they go off the wagon and, and they have you know, further cheats and they don't stick to it. So it's like, well, you, you got to pick one argument. You either feel like you don't like refeeds because people then go off the rails or you don't like the study because people who had refeeds had better adherence. But it sounds like you're kind of playing both. Yeah, I mean, so I think the the worst adherence argument he would mainly have with the with something more like the Bill Campbell study where it's five or six low calorie days one high day or something like that, or one cheat meal or something like that. That's, um, I think the worst adherence is mainly concerning that. Uh, I think what he said about the Matador study is that uh, you could see it being a good thing, but then they did like a long-term follow-up and see how much better people were, were able to hold on to their fat loss results and there was no statistically significant difference. So in the long term, there doesn't even seem to be an adherence benefit. Now, Personally, I did not really push for the whole adherence thing because I was mainly interested in the physiological outcomes um, because I think to me it just makes sense that in terms of what works for someone from a psychological stance and or standpoint and from an adherence standpoint, there's going to be a lot more variable than physiology. And I think even if there is like one person for whom a diet break sort of setup is going to produce better adherence, then that can be a good reason to have that as a tool in our tool belt. So on, on that front, I'm a lot less adamant against them. Like I, I think better adherence can be a reason to do basically anything at any time. I mean, if I saw that someone has better adherence, I don't know, drinking their own semen or something <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're going to do that from now on. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, and it, it's... It's an important point that, you know, we don't have to harp on too much because I think we're probably all in agreement there. But it's one of those things I've said on other podcasts where it's like, look, like I understand people listening probably want to know like the hard physiological facts and like what's happening. And like I get that for sure. But the reality is most people like it's almost like when I talk about like the genetics argument and it's like for me, I harp on the genetics because me, people like me and like you, like we've pushed ourselves so hard for so long that the difference between us and maybe somebody else actually is genetics. But like for 95% of people, that's really not what they need to focus on, right? They actually do need to work harder and do things better. And it, when it comes to like this psychological adherence thing, it's like these physiological differences do matter to us and, and maybe make a small difference here and there. But the psychology of it is actually huge and, and why most people actually fail diets. So um, I understand that maybe that's not the main point of today's discussion, but I just kind of want to throw out there that if we do recognize that, let's say, diet breaks have a big benefit on psychological adherence to a diet, I definitely think that that's important, especially for people that were training, you know, to understand that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so one thing, like I told you in private, I, I wish this uh, podcast that I did with Mano could have been three times as long because mm -hmm. uh, there would have been a lot more follow-ups that I follow up questions that I would, I would have had. And one thing that he said is that when you do a contest prep, and you're going to unsustainably long body fat levels, and you just cannot do that six-month-long diet in one go, then it can make sense to just take a break. Right. Um, but I don't necessarily agree that this only applies to a contest prep where it has this kind of royal whatever status of like, okay, when, when you do a contest prep, then anything can go. Otherwise, 
there is no reason to do these things because I also think that if you are an obese person, let's say who has to lose, I don't know, a hundred pounds, I don't know, like 40 kilos or something like that. I mean, that can be a daunting as hell prospect. And I think there can be a lot of benefits in simply practicing the lifestyle, which eventually you will have to live. And also like, um, as we discussed, you and I on multiple podcasts, I mean, some people might have just as hard of a time getting to, say, 15% body fat as some people have at getting to 5% body fat. Yeah. I think that's rare. I don't think that's, you know, the majority, but it, it is absolutely a reality that can happen. Uh, so I, I think uh, there definitely can be more value in, in using these things than, you know, we don't have to reserve the right just for like an extreme thing like a contest prep. So, yeah, that was actually one of the things I had written down when listening to his uh, podcast with you is that, and I know we're kind of going back and forth between you and me versus like my arguments with men. I guess it all kind of flows together, but he had, he had kind of conceded the point that it can be beneficial for contest prep. And so I, I do understand his overarching theme, but if you're saying that it has this benefit for contest prep, which again, I think we could sub in contest prep with anybody doing like a serious diet. Obviously I don't think you have to actually be stepping on stage, but then he also talked about one of his early points is like, you know, we really don't see in the research that like anybody has success with this long term or that this is anybody who stays lean year round implements this. And ironically, so I'm actually going to be putting out a video this week on uh, like the refeed method that you and I have talked about privately quite a bit. But that is not the norm to stay lean. And I don't think many people do talk about this method to stay lean. Like every, like all the context that I've ever heard it talked about, even in our industry, it's always as part of a diet. Almost everybody I know who uses it as part of a diet stops it when the diet is over. And then they go to a more sustainable approach. They go to maybe more steady calories. I don't know almost anybody who's like, okay, well, I've finished the diet and now I'm going to be implementing refeeds, you know, in the same method. It's usually not. I mean, if you talk with Eric Helms, when he had dieted down for his contest and he had a few back to back between contests, he ramped calories up. And eventually as they got a little bit higher, they stopped refeed. So I think there's a distinction here between he's almost making this argument that like, well, this isn't how people stay lean year round. And I don't think that many people are even saying that that's how you get lean year round. I think it's how you get lean in the first place and staying lean is a different story. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I would, uh, I would agree with that. And, um, like I said, like I said, I didn't want to go too much into like what works for people as a lifestyle long term, because if there is one thing that I learned over time, especially as I started coaching people, and I've seen that I'm not the only one person in, in the universe. And there, there are people with different experiences, different physiologies and mindsets, that there are just many, many more ways to succeed in this. And um, for example, one thing that might not work out for Menno, who is an entrepreneur, has his lifestyle structured in one way and whatever might actually work for someone who is working nine to five Monday through Friday and has the weekends to chill a little bit. And, uh, you know, maybe the weekend cheat meals might actually work perfectly well to stay lean year round. Even I think there are general themes that uh, are recommended for most people, but I didn't want to get into that that much. But yeah, to be honest, I, I would agree with that, that uh, how you get lean is not necessarily the same way as you stay lean. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, just a 20 second interruption. If you're interested in working together with me and having me in your corner as a coach for your fat loss and muscle building goals, you can read up on the services I offer at ablessd.com. 
or you can email me on the address in the show description. That's it. Let's continue with the show. So one of the other points is he, he talked about, you know, well, the research shows that, you know, once we control for the calorie deficit, it's pretty similar. And first of all, I agree with that. I think most studies we show or we have do show on average that when you're matching calories, it, it is similar. I think part of it, though, is and again, I, I hate to be the person just saying, well, you know, we're not studying bodybuilders. But I mean, obviously, there are differences when you talk about an untrained, obese individual dieting down like I don't think it's almost like when you look at beginners and training studies it's like wow yeah they all grew a ton <laughs> like you're just probably not going to pick up these small differences and when you look at you know an overweight population that doesn't train or anything like that it's like yeah it's going to be pretty similar um I think when you're talking about very trained individuals who have to worry about muscle mass and who are getting very lean there might be more differences I'm not going to say definitely but and you know I hate to resort to what sounds like just common sense but if you know if you were to diet down i think you actually played a clip in your video of eric helms talking about how he had to go to these really low calories right and how he he felt like he needed to do that to like really get the last fat off and then he'd go to a refeed so menno himself has said that you're you don't tend to gain any fat back when you have a refeed right i mean like as far as like a one meal or even like a day certainly over a longer period of time you could gain quite a bit back so if you just kind of think logically about it, most people recognize that there is a range of calorie maintenance, right? There's a range that you can maintain on due to changes in need and the thermic effect of food and things like that. So maybe, you know, Abel, you or I could maybe maintain on, let's say, 2400, where we're not going to lose weight on 2400, but, you know, the body adjusts enough. And But if you went up to 2800, other than the transient increase in food, bulk, and water, you're also not going to lose or you're also not going to really gain weight. So I think most people kind of recognize that. So let's say then in that case that you need to go down to 1800 to lose fat. So you do that for a few days, whatever. Then you have the refeed and let's say it's like 2800. So Menno and, and most people recognize that, okay, that one day at 2800 to 3000 is not going to put on any fat, but you've just brought your average up. And your refeed might be enough to bring your average up to a level that you know if you had steady state calories, you wouldn't lose weight, right? Maybe your refeed, you know, I said 2,800, but let's say the refeed is high enough that it brings your average up to 2,400, where we've already said you're not going to lose weight. So we're recognizing that there's this level where you have to go below to lose fat. We're recognizing that there is a level that you could refeed at and regain no fat. So do you see what I'm saying there in terms of like when you look at the average calories versus when you dip down into low levels? Because there's that buffer range where you're not going to gain fat back, I think it's logical to conclude that you could have a higher average calories with refeeds and actually still lose fat. And I've seen that to extreme levels with cheat days where, again, I really don't recommend cheat days. I don't think the net result is worth it but i've dieted down and lost fat on average calories that were like 26 2700 that i could never lose weight on if i had steady state calories because i had these very low days followed by like a massive 10,000 calorie cheat day which again just to be clear i would not recommend that but i think you can certainly diet on higher average calories when you implement the refeeds yeah okay so um and that's to be honest if i saw more of that anecdotally that would definitely nudge me in the direction of okay like this is there might be definitely something to this um 
because one of the reasons, like I said in that interview, why I'm I'm skeptical about that is because that's just not what I tend to see uh, from you know, and and I can. I could probably mm-hmm. list a lot of people here that I've just heard talking about this in podcasts and whatever. That's like, yeah, yeah, this is really good and 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 really helps me with the metabolic adaptations and whatever. And then when they tell me what they do, it's man, you're like you're still on a very very low average calorie number, and mm-hmm. you're just yeah. shifting that number left and right. But the average is still freaking low calories. And um, if I saw more of your anecdote where, okay, previously my average calories had to be at 1,800. Now, if I factor in that refeed and then the low calorie days, now my average is at 2,500 or something, then okay, ooh, wow, that's that sounds actually pretty legit. Um, but that's not, not what I tend to see. And um, <laughs> you, I'm sure you remember when the reverse dieting thing was really big right, with Ray right. Norton. And I remember listening to... Listening to an interview or a podcast episode with Lane Norton and Sohi Lee, and they were discussing the contest prep of Sohi Lee, which she was doing at the time. And she was saying how she brought up her calories extremely slowly since her last contest prep. So she brought it up to a reasonable level, but she did it very, very slowly and she ramped up her metabolism. And then Lane asked, so and how was your contest prep this time? What were your numbers? It's like, well... Last time I contest prepped, uh, my calories were at 1,000 calories. This time they were at 1,050 calories. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. I, was, I remember, and, and actually that was during a time when I, was, I had a lot of hopes for the whole reverse dieting thing. So I, I actually wanted to try it myself and whatever. And I heard that and I was like, this wah, wah, that went on in my head. I was like, I just felt so deflated. And that's what I more so tend to see with this. But what was I, Lane's reaction to that? <laughs> Did he think that that was like a good anecdote for it? Yeah, I mean, it was like, right, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously it takes time to, you know, probably if you did it again, it would be even higher or whatever. Like, yeah, right, uh, obviously right, right. they just released a book about it or whatever. So he couldn't couldn't afford being <laughs> too down about it himself. So for one, I, I agree. And it's kind of like, you know, which one comes first? Because like, you had mentioned that with like me and Eric, like we, we did the refeeds and we both had to diet on very low calories. One, you can make the argument, is it that we had to go to such low calories because we had refeeds or do we just need to get to extremely low levels of calories to continue to lose any fat? And then in response to that, we have refeeds. You know, it's kind of hard to parse that out with just a few different examples. Um, In my particular example, I think it's very hard because my average calories were quite low, as you know. But part of that is I got pretty impatient at the end and I just wanted to be done with it. And part of it is also, I mean, just if you look at like you and I, I mean, we're both very similar height, weight, muscle mass, but you were way more active. I mean, you were doing full body workouts, I think, right? Like six days a week or something like that. You were doing 15,000 plus steps a day. Whereas like (laughs) I was doing probably your daily volume spread across my entire week in training. Um, you know, I had three, I did like an upper, lower, upper, and they were very minimal workouts. I was doing maybe like 5,000 steps a day, maybe probably less than that. Um, almost no cardio. So it's hard to parse out, you know, just comparing us. Um, I've historically always had to go pretty low. And to your point though, I mean, I've never really gone an extended period of time without refeeds where it's just, I just had it constant i've maybe done that for like two or three weeks at a time and that was it and generally speaking when i do that 
I will eventually see kind of that like whoosh where, I mean, and, and that's a big thing too. I mean, certainly there's the phenomenon that people think refeeds are really helpful because they have a refeed and all of a sudden they lose all this weight. And that, you know, in, in no way would I ever suggest that that's, that they just suddenly lost all this fat. Like it's pretty obvious that they were losing fat the whole time and that allowed them to kind of see the fat loss by losing the water. So um, I would definitely say that I don't think they're as necessary as I used to think. Um, but as far as the argument of like, does it help bring your average calories up? I, I don't think it does much. I, I don't think it in terms of total weight loss, it does that much in terms of bringing average calories up. Certainly the higher the refeeds go, the more you will see that. But I think that speaks more to the fact that there's only so much the body can absorb in like a short time. And the body is certainly efficient and able to do that. But when you're talking about 10,000 calorie cheats, you know, I have, like I said, lost weight on 26, 2700 calorie averages when I've had those cheat days. Um, but one, it makes the rest of the week completely miserable. It makes you extremely food focused on that cheat day. It's, it's just not user recommended. Um, but again, when you're talking such high calories, I think probably the, there's something going on there where you're, you're just not absorbing at all. Realistically, it would be my guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I think most of us have some anecdotal support for that, at least where you do when you do some insane cheat, the net fat gain from that one day or from especially if it's just like a, if one meal or something, basically the shorter of a time window you're condensing that into the the less fat gain there will be there will be quite a lot still but not nearly right, as much as what sure. you would expect. Um, but yeah, so honestly, if um, if I, if I see more anecdotes like that, uh, then that would definitely be be some support that I, I would value, and um, and obviously that's once again very hard because, um, like we talked about, how Jeff Alberts is reporting that he had better muscle retention, everything went better when he started doing refeeds. Eric is doing the same, saying the same thing, but it's so hard because these are competitive bodybuilders that are constantly optimizing things. So right. Jeff Alberts, uh, yes, he started doing refeeds, but it, it, I'm sure it was not some mini scientific experiment that he engineered on himself when he kept everything else the same and the refeeds were the only thing he changed. So he used to do some crazy stuff like we talked about it before, like losing 30 pounds in whatever, six weeks. <laughs> uh, he used to do a lot of crash dieting. And since then, he learned a lot about his own body, like what his volume kind of sweet spots are in terms of training, how to stay injury free, how to manipulate his activity levels, what kind of average weekly calorie deficit he should shoot for. And he was also doing the refeeds. So it's, it's just it's just tough to tell um, what really worked in his case. Um, and I would actually love to, I mean, I will have this podcast episode with Eric, which is kind of a surprise. But uh, after that, actually, I would uh, love to have him on and talk about this with him because I the last thing I would want to do, with, especially with Eric, is like shitting on him behind his back on <laughs> podcast episodes. So I would actually love to dissect this with him. Like, what did he experience in the past? I know that, like you, he always had to go quite low in calories when he was getting very lean. Like, are your calories substantially high than they were in your previous preps when you didn't do refeeds? Uh, or you always did refeeds and we have no way to test that. So that's another thing, right? Like it's hard to – like there are relatively few people who did things intelligently before without refeeds. And then they started doing refeeds intelligently as well and they can compare. Like usually people did things dumb in the past and now they're doing things smartly and with refeeds. So right. it's like you're comparing apples to oranges. Um, and I will shut up in a second. Just wanted to mention this. So what, during my photo shoot diet – would I have been better off with refeeds? Almost certainly, yes. 
I would say. Uh, but I mean, I was losing weight stupidly fast by the end. I mean, you've seen that video that I sent you where I'm like maybe 8% body fat and like dancing around in front of the camera. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe one day I maybe one day I will actually post that on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I was what 79 kilos on that video. Um, three weeks later, four weeks later, I was 76. Right. Sure. Now, when you're that lean, you just cannot lose weight that fast and not expect muscle loss. If I did refeeds then, I would have been better off. But I think what I really needed more than anything at that point is just losing weight half as fast as I did at that time. So, yeah, that would be my monologue. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I was about to say, do you think you would have been, like, given your stance on everything here, do you think you would have been better off with refeeds? Or you mean just slower net weight loss. Yeah, I, so I think I would attribute the benefits in that case to that, slowing down the rate of weight loss. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it is always hard to control when you're just talking about like individuals here, especially when you talk about, like you said, with somebody like Jeff, where it was very, like, he, you know, he, he did a lot in the past that he wouldn't agree with now. It's something that I'd be open to experimenting with the next time I diet down. I'm um, just saying that, okay, so in part because I would agree that the psychology there is huge. Um, one of the things that I did with this cut more than other ones was implement actual diet breaks, and I like them. Um, when I've had those cheats, I inevitably, of course, find that I become focused on that and when that next day comes. And I don't tend to like just like, oh, a 4,000 calorie day. Like, I mean, as you know, I have some like big refeeds and I enjoy them, but there's no question that I then have to make up for them. And psychologically, it's probably not the best. And I, I guess I just hate to not get to have those foods. But I, I think there's definitely merit behind like when I would do carb cycling in the past, I never did cheat days. And when I tried to implement cheat days, like I said, yes, my average calories went up, but my low days got a lot lower and more miserable. Um, and, and so I think you can make the psychological argument either way. But and that's going to be somewhat individual. I, I think diet breaks. I've actually become more and more a fan of one just because we we have more research on it now. Um, I don't think there's much of any downside other than that you're slowing things down a bit. Which you know is that that big of a deal if you're trying to implement into this into your life? I mean, I understand Meadow's point. Like, oh, you know, that's time that you could be spent bulking. But mm. again, I, I, that's just so individual. Maybe you just want to say, screw it. I just want to be done this in 12 weeks. But if you don't mind making it 20 weeks, that, that could be a lot more enjoyable. I mean, that's totally going to be individual. Like I would, you know, with any of my clients, I would talk to them about that. And I'd say, you know, how are you feeling? I might not even have that plan from the start, but I might gauge as we're going along and say, okay, how are you feeling? Are you feeling run down? Okay, you are. Let's do a diet break. And I mean, this cut, I had a three week diet break one time. I had consistently done a few like three day diet breaks where I do four days dieting, three days at maintenance. Um, and I actually found that pretty enjoyable because like, there, there wasn't this huge food focus of like, well, this is my day to eat, you know, all the crap in the world. Yeah. But it was like, this is my day to just kind of feel normal. I could have more of like the health like you and I talked about, like when you're dieting, like you just sometimes you just want more of like regular food. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a nice way of doing it. So I have, in the that's like one of the bigger changes I've had in the last couple of years is going more towards the diet breaks. I also just don't think physiologically, like if we are conceding that there are some benefits physiologically, which I, again, I know Menno might dispute. I do think that it would require longer periods of time. And, and even Lyle would say that even in some of his older books that, you know, um, UD2 was set up so that you're kind of refeeding over a two or three day period. You know, I mean, that was basically kind of what I was doing, to, I mean, not exactly, but in the structure of like four days of hard dieting 
and three days of more maintenance, I think you do need longer periods of time. If you're, you're going to see any benefit at all, it's not going to come from one giant meal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, that's pretty much where I'm at with this in that just looking into the future with this whole thing because I think we can all agree that um, – I mean, we, we can kind of uh, philosophically debate like how much credence we put into the research that has come out thus far. But I think we can all agree that it's all in its infancy. And now there is some better research to come. Like Jackson Pios, uh, I think, is doing something which will be more relevant for lifters. So let's see what comes out of those. Um, there are certain things which I'm more open to or I'm more optimistic about seeing benefits from those than from other things. So, for example, with longer diet breaks, so taking, you know, week or longer breaks every once in a while, I would not be shocked if we saw some actual benefits from them, even if you were doing an intelligently small deficit beforehand, because you know, I mean, who knows exactly the dynamics of leptin, what things are going on. Maybe there is some bit of a reversal of these metabolic adaptations. Maybe there are some things which you can actually get out of a longer break during a deficit, which will translate itself to better results physiologically, not to mention psychologically. So I would not be shocked. I would also not be shocked if we find out that, no, you know, you're basically just taking a break as you go back into a deficit, you're just going to face right, the right. same exact problems as, as you did before. Um, that would be kind of Menno's argument. I'm 50-50 on that, I would say, because I think the way we often imagine uh, what a diet break can do for you is like taking time off from training when something is about to start hurting or so you have some niggle. Because in that case, if you take a break from training, I mean, that might be maybe not a permanent fix, but that might give you another year of productive training because you don't develop an injury, which you would have otherwise. It might be the case that if you take a, a, a break from dieting, then it's just delaying the inevitable, basically. Right. So it, it, it might be the case as well. But nevertheless, um, when it comes to like one-day refeeds, yeah, I would be pretty surprised if we saw significant physiological benefits from those. Um, simply because certain things I would just not expect from that. And that's what I asked from Menno as well. Like, I mean, really, what could be a mechanism that would allow you to retain more lean mass if you spike your calories on one day? I mean, really, it's chronic signaling at the end of the day that decides what happens in your body. So if you do things for six days and then you do something else for one day, I mean, what is that really going to accomplish? So if anything, I would argue for the opposite, which I'm not necessarily saying that that's the correct answer either, but I would expect that if you're keeping things more constant and your overall calories are higher, I would expect better results from that, which, and it could be just that it, it just doesn't matter. That wouldn't surprise me either. Um, but yeah, on diet breaks, I'm, I, would, I would say I'm also more optimistic. Yeah, have you read Bill Campbell's, I think you guys talked about it a little bit, um, the one that Cody Hahn had referred to somewhat recently. Let me see. Yeah. Minute energy restriction attenuates the loss of fat-free mass in resistance-trained individuals. Because that was only, I mean, that was earlier this year. Uh, I haven't read through that entirely at this point. So I was going to before this, and then this, this weekend got kind of jumbled. But have you actually read through like the entire paper or just talk to Menno about it? Yeah, so basically, I read through the study. At first, I was like, okay, like, because I just read, <laughs> I, do, I did what most people do who are not like researchers. So at first, I just read the results and the conclusion. And I was like, oh, damn, this looks legit. And then I read Menno's article on this. And I also read James Krieger's uh, article on that. And basically, in both cases, the conclusion was that, well, 
the main issue, first of all, adherence was pretty bad here as well. So there are some issues there, like in the Metador study. But secondly, they did the measurements after they did the refeeds. So basically, when they see higher uh, fat-free mass retention, that could legitimately just be glycogen, loaded glycogen levels. And and um, I heard a podcast, I think it was on the Revive Stronger podcast, where this was like two months ago or something, but I think Bill Campbell himself said that, well, yeah, I mean, honestly, I wish we did the measurements not after the refeeds, but, you know, a few days later or maybe after the deficit period so that it's equated between the two groups. Right, right. Okay. Um, the only other thing that I had written down with Menno is, so he talked about how he does think that there is some good research on fasting, right? And he likes to implement alternate day fasting for his fat loss clients. Yeah. So that, I don't know, I'd love, like at some point I got to have Menno on and talk to him. Uh, and I'll probably go over a lot of these same points. But so he, he said, people tolerate shorter, more aggressive deficits, more than long drawn out ones. So that was his argument for fasting, right? Is that, you know, you have this really drawn, like this really intense day of fasting. I don't know exactly how he implements his fasting, but basically you're going to have a severe deficit on these days. And the other days, I guess, are more at maintenance, right? And again, that quote, people tolerate these more aggressive deficits than long drawn out ones. Is that pretty accurate? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's more or less what he said on the podcast, yeah. Okay. So to me, it's like, how is that not refeeds? You're saying an alternate day fasting, you're having them in a severe deficit, and then you're just flipping the terms. Yeah. But your days at maintenance... That's, that's a refeed. That's the same thing as what Eric Helms was doing. So Eric Helms was saying, man, I have these big deficit days and then I have my quote refeed that it's like basically maintenance or slightly above. And Menno is, <laughs> this whole, like, I thought that was so ironic because it was at the end of the in interview where he's going on about how, you know, it's much more sustainable to have a chronic deficit and not have refeeds. When you have refeeds, people go off the wagon. It's not psychologically great. You know, all these things. And then he concludes that he likes alternate day fasting, which is just a form of implementing refeeds between severe deficit days. And it, it kind of just goes against everything that he was saying prior to that point. Well, I mean, it's, it, it does and it doesn't to me in a way. It, it, it does go against it in that it is calorie cycling, which refeeds are also a form of calorie cycling. But I feel like it doesn't go against that in that Basically, it's the reverse approach of a refeed. So in the case of a refeed, you're lowering calories most of the time, and then you're hiring calories on like one or two days or something like that. Um, whereas in this case, it's basically you're cramming the deficit into like only one day or maybe two days or something. So you're basically, it's not the, yeah, it's not the high calories that are like out of the norm and something that you're looking forward to. But it's more so that that's your norm, like you have an overall quote-unquote sustainable lifestyle, and then you're the sucky part, you're cramming into a shorter window, um, which is kind of the reverse of a refeed, wouldn't you agree? Well, didn't he say he does alternate day fasting? I mean, I could have misunderstood that, but I thought he said he did it all, every other day. No, so what, what he says, I, I can speak about that somewhat because I, I worked with him um, in the past. So what he does, but I, I know what he does in general with his, his coaching setup is, um, let's say you're, and it, he doesn't just do that during uh, fat loss, actually. <laughs> so that's the interesting thing. So if you're an advanced lifter and he estimates that you have this shorter anabolic window, so uh, it's safe to go pretty low in calories if you have a rest day, what you would do is say you work out six days a week and you have one rest day. 
what he would do is you're eating your kind of bulking calories. Your let's say your average bulking macros are thirty one hundred calories. So you would eat say I don't know thirty two thirty three hundred calories six days a week, and then on one day a week you would have fourteen hundred thirteen hundred calories. I think. The value that he's working with there is your protein intake times 10, basically, is your calorie number. So if your required protein amount is 150 grams, then you would eat 1,500 calories on that day. Um, so basically, that's what he does. So, and, and I would assume that he only does that when someone, like on one or two days max. So if you're training three days a week, he wouldn't give you four, you know, protein sparing modified fast days. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not totally new. I mean, I remember Brad Loomis talking about that years ago, that he would actually have five days at maintenance and two days. Like he basically crammed his deficit for the week into two days per week. Um, I typically implement one 24 hour fast per week for a couple of reasons, but basically I'll, I'll finish a meal on like, you know, my day on Sunday night, and then I won't eat again until Monday night. And I'll just have, you know, my one meal there. So maybe like a thousand calories on that whole day. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't, so he is, cause I, I was surprised by this actually at the end there where he, it sounds like he is actually in favor of a form of carb cycling that has more calories on workout days and almost like, it seems like the industry on the whole has kind of gone away from the idea of, you know, changing calories significantly on workout days and the anabolic window and all of that. It sounds like he is actually still in favor of putting more calories around workouts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is he's very meticulous about estimating someone's anabolic window. So if some if he had an, a novice client then or a complete newbie, then probably he would not be implementing uh, protein spare modified fasts at all. If he had like you, let's say, then probably if you had a day off, uh then he would probably give you uh, a protein spare modified fast. If you're working 3 days a week and you were working with him, then probably he would just alternate higher and lower calorie days on your workout and rest days because he would estimate that there is some benefit in putting more calories in the period around the workout because that's the greatest likelihood that you can make good use of those higher calories because like even after like whatever 12 hours you're not really building muscle anymore as a very advanced lifter so the most productive use of your time basically is fat loss i think that would be his argument yeah i think i mean it's interesting because that's like always been the kind of bro theories right more calories on workout days i think intuitively it makes sense right i i just think anecdotally and I think some research on it shows that it doesn't make that much of a difference, but I wouldn't even really argue that much against it. Cause like I could see why it would make sense. You know, I think there was actually even a paper Cody Hahn mentioned someone, I think it was Cody Hahn mentioned recently that it was actually in support of the anabolic window. It, it showed that like, if you went problem with these studies is, is, you know, they have them like completely fasted beforehand. And then they showed like, well, if you ate protein within like a half an hour, it was better than like two hours. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody who was going into a workout completely fasted and then still doesn't eat for like several hours <laughs> afterwards. So I'm not surprised to see that, you know, um, I understand the whole like proof of concept with these studies, but it would be nice if they just had like somewhat regular meal patterns like, oh, you know, they ate a normal meal an hour before working out and then they ate half an hour or three hours afterwards like that could be maybe a little bit more representative but in any case like I, I wouldn't you know have a strong argument against his point there 
Um, it's just interesting because it, it really seems like a lot of people have kind of gone against that in recent times. Yeah, I mean, um, so my bias is that it probably just doesn't make that much sense. And, and that is simply because I almost from um, a philosophical standpoint, I would not want to do this with my clients and even with myself. Because, um, and I talked about this a little bit with Eric Trexler when he was on my podcast, that physiologically it does make sense to me, but I would not want to create this psychology with people where they feel like they have to work out to deserve a reasonable amount of food, you know, mm -hmm. especially if someone is like bulking or something. Because um, men are always actually a fan of implementing that even during bulking. So I think just freaking eat a normal amount of food on most days. And, you know, then if you want to implement some sort of cycling because you go out on the weekends or something and you want to have higher calories, then we will find a way to make mm -hmm. that work. But I, I just intuitively, I would think that this can almost create a psychology of a bit of, you know, exercise bulimia where, okay, if I work out hard, then I get to eat. If I don't work out, that means I'm starving. So I better work out every single day, right. which uh, was honestly my psychology when I worked with Menno in the past. Um, now, one thing I also learned through Menno's work, actually, is that people are just really horrendously bad intuitive psychologists. So it could well be the case that if I gave it a really honest go, I could have made it work for myself. And a lot of people can. Uh, probably a lot of people can, and that's why he still implements it years later. Um, but at least from a physiological standpoint, it makes sense, right? Like it, it does have some rationale behind it where you go, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. Like you eat more around your workout, like that should have some benefit at least. Then maybe worst case scenario, it just doesn't make any difference. Yeah, I don't think it's going to harm anything for sure. Um, I just, I don't know if it would make much of a difference either, like long term. I mean, it's one of those things where, <laughs> you know, maybe somebody would say, well, if you really want to optimize everything and you want you're, you want to be that 0.1%, this is important. But like, man, like, would you really see a difference? I mean, I used to do that. I always had, you know, that was a back in Shelby Starnes on T Nation. And it was like, okay, you know, your leg and your back day are going to be your high days. You know, your other workouts are going to be moderate days. And then your off days are going to be your low days. And like, that sounds like it makes perfect sense. But like, lo and behold, when I stopped doing it, it made no noticeable difference. And, and certainly most people don't do that. Um, so again, I, I think it's much more hypothetical than how it actually plays out in real life. Yeah, I mean, I think the people who say that, you know, it's, it's, it's optimizing and it's that last 1%, I think... They don't stop and think what one percent actually means. Like I think intuitively they oh go. God, I, I hate that <laughs> argument so much, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but I think honestly they they say yeah, it's the extra one percent or even ten percent, but then they still think that that extra one percent is still a fuckload of the extra gains, and it's that's what I don't understand. And like I know I've harped on this before, but it's like you know when I had Lane on, and like I said, like he agreed with me, but then like still promotes that message, and I'm like, okay. Do you understand when you guys say it makes a one to two percent difference what that actually means so if you're going to gain one pound of muscle this year doing this thing that's a significant you know pain in the ass to do is going to give you 1.01 pounds of muscle this year like do you realize what you're saying when you say one to two percent difference it, i mean it's not measurable by any way that we could measure differences and so i, I just it's almost like, what's the point? And that's assuming that it actually does do that 1% to 2%, which, again, you have no way of actually proving. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, at that point, you're running into a, a marketing problem. Like, right. um, <laughs> And um, 
I remember, I specifically remember I was taking a walk while I was listening to that podcast of yours with Lane. And I actually paused and thought to myself, what would I respond to this if I was him? And um, and I actually concluded that probably I would just say, you know what, you're completely right. You don't have to do this. And then I would have launched into a monologue about, you know, enjoying the process and not overthinking it and whatever and just mm-hmm. doing it if you if it's fun for you and this and that. But then I thought like, well, but would I risk that? I mean, my freaking livelihood is could be on, on the line here, right? Like right, uh, right. in part, I'm selling information and I'm, and I'm selling myself as this this person who is presenting to you the information that you think could be the game changer. Um, and that's um, and and honestly, that's that's the whole model of like the whole evidence-based industry in in good part, which I think is 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 awesome and amazing. But um, I mean, they they would admit probably as well that most of it just doesn't make a difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's often the conclusions of <laughs> that you know they go through the study and then the interpretation and and then they the conclusion is like well you know this probably doesn't make that much of a difference, but you know, stick with this and it's, or, you know, if you want this little bit, it, it doesn't hurt. Um, which, you know, it, it sucks because it's well, like, there's just not going to be that much that you notice that's different unless you're kind of like you and me where we just really like to kind of see what could potentially be there. Um, but I don't, I think like, as obviously you and I preach a lot, it's like, you just need to make sure that you don't lose the message because for most people, those things don't matter. Um, but, and that's kind of like going back to the refeed topic. What's interesting is I really would have thought or said, you know, two, three years ago that this is one of those things that does matter. And like I said, I, I, I actually still believe it does, especially I, I do think diet breaks can be really beneficial for a lot of people, um, physiologically and psychologically. I, I, I still do believe that, but I, I just have less of a hard stance on it than I used to. Yeah, actually, I will ask you the same thing that I asked Menno. So what would it take for you to go that, you know what, this actually just doesn't help at all? <laughs> I think if we had, I mean, one, I will have to experiment a little bit more with it on myself. The problem with using me as an example is I'm at that point where like you're not, I think most of these things when we're talking about like what makes a difference. We're talking about that intermediate level person because at the advanced level, you're, I, I just genuinely don't think you're going to see huge differences in, in most things you do. So it's really hard to measure, but you know, let's say I did, you know, I had a little bit of my own anecdotes. Okay. I died down for, let's say eight weeks with no refeeds at all. And my results are quite good. Then that would be like a little bit, because sometimes I feel like regardless of the evidence you see, sometimes you just need to see it in yourself too. Um, but from a research standpoint, I would agree with men. Like it wouldn't really take that much to convince me. I think we just need some well-controlled studies and if they just showed like you know okay let's say i'd be a little bit more specific than menno i said if you had a 12 plus week study and you used people who were lifting who were moderate body fat and got to lean levels of body fat and let's say sub 10 percent and they measured muscle mass and everything you know a couple days after the refeed like the last refeed and last training session and there was still no statistically significant difference then yeah i mean would that one study convince me entirely no but i'd, I'd certainly think okay like that's that's pretty significant to my understanding we don't have any refeed studies using already somewhat lean individuals and measuring significantly after the last refeed and training session, to my knowledge. Yeah, and I think um, it's also perfectly fair, both from you and me, to, I guess, admit that 
you know, what what it would take for us to change our stance in that, okay, I would think, okay, refeeds are legit. You thinking that, okay, maybe they, they just don't matter is a different question than saying, what would it take for us to actually start doing the opposite of what we have been doing so far? Um, mm-hmm. Because I had just, uh, you know, decent experiences not using them. And I had that little bit of experience, which was not that positive with refeeds. And you have been doing them for ages and you like you had good experiences with them. That's what I want to say. So I think even if you would get convinced by some research, I think probably you would still want to do them because it, they have worked fine for you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, as I've kind of like learned more about myself and the psychology of dieting i've i've definitely changed how i've done them like i said i definitely used to be more like on the cheat days and everything and i, I think for most people that's not optimal even for me as like i'm not really somebody who tends to go off the rails like it's, it's very rare i don't even know if i've ever had it where like i had a cheat day and then the next day i was like oh, i can't control it. like if anything i want to get back to the diet afterwards um but like i said they just it kind of becomes a cycle and and in the last one to two diets i've definitely leaned more towards diet breaks and you know that opinion might change again in another year or two but for right now that's that's more or less my stance on it okay so um the last thing i want to say is um what did you think of the last little bit of our convo with menu which was about um the hardship of dieting being in our head for the most part. So I did think that was interesting because you had sent me an article, I guess it was by him or maybe it was just like points by him just talking about how, I think that was specifically on how sleep is not disrupted by diet. And again, it's tough because like in one sense, I get that like we, we only have the evidence that we have. And so we have to go by what we have. But that's where, again, I mean, as evidence-based as I like to be, I really hate to throw out anecdote because there's so many issues with anecdote, of course. Like, I mean, we, there's so many things that people just like don't recognize in themselves and it's not controlled, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, I think sometimes people put way too much confidence in these studies that aren't looking at like what we're even talking about. So the large majority of those studies in the paper that you sent me were like usually overweight individuals who were dieting for one to like seven days. Like they were pretty short term. There was one or two in there that were longer term, but they just weren't that significant. So one was like, you know, well, there was no difference between those who were in a 15% deficit and a 40% deficit. And I don't know the exact numbers, but it was like a smaller, large deficit. But I'm like, okay, but they were both still in a deficit. And then there was others where it's like, you know, over 48 hours, there was no detriment in their performance. And again, it's like, okay, two days, like who, who is saying that? At least from my standpoint, I think, you know, when I look at talk to Helms and Trexler and like we were talking about our own anecdotes, it's like, no, like we're not saying that the minute you start dieting, I mean, maybe there are people out there saying that, I don't know, but we're not saying that the minute you start dieting, everything just crumbles and, and it becomes horrible. It's like, no, after months on end of dieting, you feel more lethargic. You feel your sleep is disrupted. Uh, he even admitted that hunger is absolutely a, like people who go to sleep hungry, that can be a detriment to their sleep quality. So, okay. Are you, are you, well, obviously <laughs> when you're months into a diet, you're going to be hungry. And he did talk about how like even hunger itself can be psychological, which of course it can be, but most would agree that it's a legitimate hunger and not just kind of in your head when you're months into dieting. So again, it's like you're admitting that 
like real hunger does eventually happen, at least in the later stages of a diet. And I think it'd be kind of silly to debate. I mean, again, I, I totally understand that hunger, it can be largely psychological, but it's certainly not just psychological when you're talking about these long diets that we're discussing here. And you're talking and admitting that hunger can absolutely affect sleep. And that's like one of the biggest detriments to sleep. And all of the evidence that's being provided, or at least the majority of it, are very short-term studies and where you're looking at somebody who wow like they were in a deficit and they didn't even know it for these couple of days and their sleep wasn't altered and it's like yeah like i don't know too many people who are making the argument that the second you go into a deficit everything goes to shit like that's just not what i see provided it's usually no okay you're months into a severe deficit you know you're now sub 10 percent your sleep is altered you're lethargic you're maybe not as quick-witted etc um and that's pretty much universally seen i mean yes obviously some people can get consciously easier than others i just don't know too many people who genuinely feel like their sleep is not affected when they get to severe diets because i would agree i mean for me like i feel better at the start of a diet a lot of times but three four months in no i mean it, it gets pretty rough yeah so um it, it, it was very interesting because on the one hand, I would also agree that, okay, so on the one hand, we say that a lot of it is in our heads, but then hunger, of course, can make you, make you like disrupt your sleep and cognitively impaired or whatever. But yeah, so on the one hand, obviously, if you're getting very lean and you're also been dieting for a long time, you're going to be hungry at some point. Like you cannot just keep avoiding that completely. Now, <laughs> when it comes to someone like Menno, I can actually buy it that he can just manage that to an exceptional level. Uh, because he is, um, he, he can, I think he's like a hyper rational person. He can just tweak and micromanage things to a degree that a lot of people probably can't. They're just too mentally fragile for that. So I can buy it to some extent that he can delay that for much longer than most people. On the other hand, um, what I immediately thought of when he said that is that like you and I have talked about, there is a lot of things that goes on in your head when you start dieting. I mean, we and I talked about how when we know that we have a cheat meal the next day or we will get to eat a lot more, like many times that can wake us up, <laughs> you know, at like sure. 3 a.m. or something and just start thinking about it, which is like really fucked up, but I'm pretty sure. Super annoying. <laughs> yeah, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people can relate to that. Like yeah. I know that when, so when I was doing like 13, 1400 calorie days uh, during my diet and, you know, given how much activity I was doing that was like fucking crazy low for me and mm -hmm. um I slept pretty badly during those days yeah. but man when the last day of those came and I knew that the next day I will have a high day at 2800 that was I mean I barely slept a wink that night like I could just yeah. not stop thinking about that um so that's that that is very obviously a factor and I'm sure you've experienced this as well that you just started a diet and or maybe you decide that okay the next day I will do a 24 hour fast or I will do a, a 1000 calorie day and you're not used to it yet like you were now at the end of your diet. I mean, many times the day has just started, like you're technically not in a deficit probably because you, you know, you were, you've been bulking up until now, you're just planning on doing this fast and you're already feeling deprived in the very beginning of the day. Totally. Like uh, your mind just plays tricks on you. So there is a lot, a lot of truth in that. I always just to make a comment on that, I find that very interesting because it's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I find myself to be more rational and objective than the average person. But, you know, I am certainly human and have emotional thoughts and everything. And so I find that on my fast days, I do one, like I said, fast day per week. 
And even though a lot of times I wouldn't eat until one o'clock anyway, like on a normal day, you know, if I'm doing intermittent fasting, I will, it'll be like 10 a.m. And I'll feel like I'm cold and like deprived. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have even eaten anyway <laughs> at this yeah. point. Like you said, it hasn't even changed yet. Um, or another example would be like when I was in college and like, I unfortunately have almost no caffeine nowadays, but in college, if I had to pull like, you know, I wouldn't say all nighter, but if I had to stay up later than normal, I would, let's say I would normally go to sleep at like 11, but I knew I had to stay up until like 2am to study. I would allow myself to have a monster energy drink, but I'd have the monster energy drink at like nine, which is like before I would even be going to sleep anyway. And I'd be almost be like excited and hyped for it with the, the idea of it, even when it wasn't there yet. I don't know, like just because I knew the feeling it was going to give me. So yeah. it, it's just it's very interesting how the psychology plays a part. And I'm definitely not in any way immune to that. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a lot of truth in that we f uh, just pay so much attention to our nutrition and our focus on how we manage macros and all of these things is just so much greater compared to how most people eat who, like Menno said, they just eat. They don't think about it. That we tend mm -hmm. to want to describe everything by what happens with our nutrition. And um, it, it definitely, at one point, it is absolutely a factor when you've been like starving yourself for months and months. But I, I did have this conversation sometimes. I try to not be aggressive about it at all. And I I want to be compassionate, but I did have this conversation with one client I can think of. Maybe he was even listening to this, so hey, if you do. <laughs> but um, I remember him saying that, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I hunger is, is, is quite fine. Like, I'm not getting that hungry. And he was making really good progress with his fat loss. And he said, but man, like, maybe we should take a diet break or something, or, or maybe you should increase calories because, man, I'm just so tired. Like, I, I feel like I'm walking through a brick wall when I'm walking down the street. And then I just asked, like, so, and I don't know, how, how is your sleep? How has your sleep been lately? It's like, oh, well, terrible. Like, I barely slept. It's like, and and right. it was not because of the diet. Like, he had some legitimate life stresses and some life trauma or some serious things that he was dealing with. And I'm like, man, I mean, <laughs> so we, we, maybe you can take a diet break just because of that because you have enough problems now. But just so you know, like, you're not feeling like this because your calories are lower. Mm -hmm. Like, you have some shit that you're dealing with and you're not sleeping. So... Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, you made that point, I think, at the end of the podcast with Menno, which I'm sure you and I have talked about at some point, but I 100% agree. It's like, man, the fucking worst part would be at the when, like, the end of the day when you have to go to sleep. It's like when I'm bulking, I'll just go to sleep. And, like, I, I always wake up in the middle of the night. Like, I, I literally don't remember the last time I, I didn't. But it's like you get up, you pee, you go back to sleep, you're good, right? So it feels like when you're going to sleep, you're pretty much done and you'll just wake up. Yeah. When I'm dieting, it's like a freaking event when I go to sleep. Like it's like a whole nother session of the day yeah. to get through because like I've probably had like a ton of shakes like to try to fill me up. So I've had a lot of water throughout the day. I'll probably pee like four times. My sleep is really interrupted. And it's like, like you said, if you could just take something to just magically like, okay, I can snap my fingers, it's 10pm. And I wake up and now it's 6am. And it just happened. I mean, holy crap, the end of my diet would have been twice as easy. Mm. Like, yeah, hunger sucks during the day. But like, I can distract myself, yeah. I can do other things. Every night, it was when I was starving, going to sleep, like questioning, like what the hell I'm doing. And I, I mean, it is so much harder for me, at least at night. 
And like I said, to I mean, I know people who can just, just zonk out <laughs> for the night and they're just like a zombie. And that is unfortunately not the case for me at all. So that disrupted sleep has always been one of the biggest things for me. And if, like I said, if there was a safe way to just go out for the night, I, I like you said, I think it would just be a conscious decision of like, well, I'm just going to keep dieting rather than this whole psychological turmoil of like, you know, is this worth it? And can I do it kind of a thing? And, and probably there would also be a lot less rebound after the diet because you would be just less spent mentally. Um, and uh, it's it's so easy to get into that vicious cycle during dieting where you, I mean, you're doing pretty well on that front because you're not using caffeine much, but um, so you have a bad night of sleep. So you wake up and you abuse the shit out of caffeine that day so For you can sure. make it through the day and you're not like super hungry and whatever. So, okay, the next night, then you're sleeping even worse. Okay, now you had like two bad nights of sleep. Now things are getting messed up. And on the third night, it's not only that you're like over-caffeinated, but it's also that now you're worried about not sleeping well. So it, it starts getting into that mindset that you described, that your sleep going to bed becomes this like, oh my God, this is another like training session that I have to manage almost. Yeah, and, really. <laughs> and, I, and I know I had I got to that point, I don't know if you did as well, where like you look at your bed at the end of the day and it's like, it's not this nice place that attracts you like, oh, it will be so nice to like stretch out and uh, finally go to sleep. It's like, it's a stressor. You look at that and it's like, oh my God, I have to go to work there almost. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, really bad. sure. Anyway, man, I think we uh, went on for long enough and I think we managed to get through basically everything. So um, yeah, I mean, I think um, we reached some pretty good common ground. Um, there's some things that we like don't completely see in the same way, but I think um, it wasn't as hostile as I expected. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention in the beginning, I totally forgot, is that, of course, anything I say I could be wrong about. And uh, I want people to realize that one mark of an expert is that they can say, I don't know, <laughs> not 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 just an expert, but an overall like great person. And I just said I could be wrong and I don't know everything. So just realize that. Well, the thing is, it's nice because you're so humble. And just yeah. by being so humble, you recognize that like sometimes you can be wrong and you don't mind saying that you can be wrong. So that's always great. And that probably shows how much more right you really are than the people who are dogmatic and the uh, charlatans out there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I cannot add anything to that. You said it exactly right. So I hope people recognize that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there was a joke. So anybody who recognizes the reference, please comment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Uh, so this is a cool combo. So yeah, please let us know, let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah. So, um, website, if you want like coaching or anything like that, Dr. Dave McConey, Instagram is Dave underscore McConey and YouTube is brains and gains. All right, guys, thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if based on what you've heard from me, if you've been following my work for a while, you would be interested in working together with me, having me as a coach and someone who would guide you through to achieve your muscle building and fat loss goals, then you can read up on my services at ablessd.com. You can email me at the address that is linked in the show description and if you just enjoy listening to these episodes then i would really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will be actually beneficial for everybody because i will be able to get more high quality guests on the podcast and that will be fun for you it will be fun for me so please do this a little bit of favor for me so that would be pretty much it thank you for hanging around up until now and we will hear each other in the next episode